Let's go on to Dr. Taylor's case. And one of the things we wanted to get into is the next generation of clinical trials that are out there. And the fact that in lots of tumors, but particularly in lung cancer, that looks a lot different than it looked three years ago in terms of what we have to offer our patients as part of a protocol. Dr. Taylor? She's a very pleasant 60-year-old woman who developed a dry hacking cough. She presented to her primary physician there who treated her conservatively for sinusitis with an antibiotic and antitussives. She felt better after this, but her cough persisted. She blamed it on moving and being exposed to bubble wrap and didn't think much more of it. But she established with a primary physician up there. And then with this continued cough that she said she's been having now for pushing a year and had a pneumonia. She was, again, treated with antibiotics with no improvement, got a chest X-ray and, quote, saw something he didn't like. This was followed by a CAT scan of her chest that showed a large mass in the right hilum. There were also multiple other bilateral pulmonary metastases noted. There were some lesions in the liver felt to be cysts. She was then referred to a pulmonologist who did a bronchoscopy with a wash and a biopsy, and the biopsy showed a adenocarcinoma. Further complete staging had a bone scan that was negative, and it had been a month since she had that initial CAT scan, so a repeat CAT scan was done, and there was some progression of the pulmonary metastasis. The liver lesions were the same, and some slight progression of her primary tumor. And she was referred to me because of the diagnosis. We got into her smoking history, which was very remote. She smoked between zero and seven cigarettes from age 16 through 27. So her calculated pack year history was less than 10 years. And she had quit again 42 years ago. So, Tom, we have what's now, I've heard the term oligosmoker here, presenting with metastatic disease. And can you talk a little bit more about the woman, what her functional status mm-hmm. was at that point and mm-hmm. her attitude? Her only significant medical problem really was well-treated long-standing hypothyroidism and osteoporosis, extremely vigorous. I guess the definition of old age is five years older than your current age. (laughs) So 68-year-old, she might be technically on the older side, but she's in better shape than I am. Even with this slight cough, it didn't really affect her much. That was really her only symptom. On exam, she was found to have a solitary subcutaneous nodule on her right scapula that didn't hurt her, but she said, yeah, it rubs on her clothes and was irritating to her. She had a brother who died after a long battle with lymphoma and went through a lot of chemotherapy. So she was very resistant to the idea of chemotherapy and all of its negative connotations in the first place because of that personal experience. She is very intelligent and knew the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer and its prognosis and was very much quality of life. I don't want to go through chemotherapy, again, because of that experience, but ruining my quality of life for an incurable disease. And she was also very, and this came out maybe not in that first interview, but in subsequent discussions with her, bitter that she quit 42 years ago, really didn't smoke much, very much the why me, why did I get lung cancer, and I didn't do this to myself, and plenty of other people smoke 10 packs a day, whatever, for 50 years and don't get it, and that played into her psyche and into her handling of her illness. Tom, what treatment options would you present to her and what recommendation would you make? So in this setting, I think a couple things. I think number one is she's somebody who I would probably test for the presence of an EGFR mutation. You've got this little subcutaneous nodule you were mentioning. That would be a perfect little nodule to have a general surgeon pop off and send for EGFR mutation testing. I probably would also test it for RAS and do a fish for expression at that point. Where do you send it? 
Genzyme will do all three of them for you with a disclaimer that Mass General Hospital, and not me personally, but my hospital, does have the patent for EGFR mutation testing. So I do have a conflict of interest with that. So just so you know that. But Genzyme has a commercial test that is available that you can do. I think in this case, we would do that. We have a protocol where we're doing that and we're treating people with first-line gefitinib off a protocol. I think first-line or lotinib is not a crazy idea. Although the difficult thing is that, remember, she's the same type of person who's going to respond to Allen's therapy as well. She's exactly the same type of person who Allen would be salivating to get carboplatin taxolavastin into. So I think we have to be careful to try to treat as many of these people on study as possible. There's a study which the CLGB is doing for exactly your patient that doesn't involve mutation testing because, as you know, being an oligo smoker is probably the best predictor of having EGFR mutation status and responding or benefiting from these drugs. It's a randomized trial of erlotinib versus chemo plus erlotinib in the oligo smoker, which I think is a terrific trial if it's available to you at that point as well. So I think what I would do is I would talk to her about either carboplatin taxolavastin or mutation testing and consideration of therapy with an EGFR inhibitor if a trial like that is available. And even off trial, I would think about it if I knew she was mutation positive and she had that attitude or feelings that you had said about wanting to watch for toxicity. And suppose you were mutation negative. Mutation negative, I would treat her with carboplatin taxolavastin. If she didn't want chemotherapy. If she didn't want chemotherapy, if she said, listen, I'm not going to take chemotherapy, I would treat her with erlotinib, and I probably wouldn't bother mutation testing her because she's not going to take chemo anyway, so the stakes aren't as high. And, you know, there's a pretty big gap between I will not take chemotherapy, I will take chemotherapy, and I'm not really too crazy about this idea. Is there any alternative? Do you think that a patient like this should have a single-agent Tarceva presented as an option? I think it's a reasonable option to talk to her about. However, I still think that I don't feel comfortable until we have a little more data. We have some data from ASCO this year that suggested selecting patients by mutation status up front identifies a group of patients who have a remarkable benefit. A study from Spain looked at 42 patients, mutation positive up front, response rate 82%, time to progression 13 months. And we're doing a very similar study at MGH and a number of sites around the country. So I think the data is going to be there, and I think it's not unreasonable to think about first-line or lotnib in this setting. I thought the follow-up on this case was incredibly interesting. Dr. Taylor, what happened? Okay, so this will be a push for community oncologists to participate in clinical trials. So we do have CLGB 30406 available. Great. And that's going to be a difficult study because one of the requirements for that is... Is tissue. Is tissue. But she got the thing on her well, back. Well, I know, for her. So she, she was delivered on a silver platter for yes, this. Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> I thought that was where you're going with that. So I sent her to a general surgeon to remove one. It was symptomatically irritating to her, so it was Make easy for her. Yeah. And discussed with her this clinical trial, which randomizes between carboplatinum and taxol plus Tarceva versus Tarceva alone. She initially was very interested in it and then went home with the informed consent. And that did her in. <laughs> well, yes. Generally, I'll take that. But I just, the way you discussed, I just believe in my heart that she'll do well with this type of therapy. So after several long discussions and saying, I'll get you through it, this is a short-term sacrifice, hopefully for a long-term gain. She rethought it and then came back in and they decided to enroll on the clinical trial. Great. So the metastatic lesion was adenocarcinoma, consistent with her primary, and that was sent off for, is it just EGFR testing? Or? They're doing mutation testing. Okay. They're looking for fish. They're doing RAS. Okay. They're doing the whole panel of markers. Although I don't think they're providing the information to you in real time, are they? No. No, I do not no, believe right. so. Well, at least I haven't heard yeah. on that yet. Probably done in 2011. <laughs> so she was randomized and she received the carboplatinum taxol with concurrent Tarceva. 
She received her first dose three weeks ago, and she's probably an hour into her second cycle. Her second dose, okay. (laughs) Now, the first cycle, day one, she tolerated well coming home after chemotherapy that night. And then day two, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of diarrhea. Now, I participated in one of Mark Sosinski's Leinberger clinical trials for the elderly. Now, he defines elderly as over 70, where that was Taxol with Arissa. This was a couple years ago. And I think I put four people on that trial. And the elderly, I'd be interested in your experience with some of this. A lot of diarrhea. I think I'll ask him this afternoon when he's here. They had to halt that trial temporarily because of some toxicity, mainly diarrhea. So she had this. Now, it was large volume. She had about four per day. And she stopped the Tarceva on her own that day. And I saw her the next day, gave her some fluids. And again, a lot of nurturing, a lot of reassurance that she hadn't taken a Imodium appropriately yet. And that we'll get you through this. Immediately after stopping the Tarceva and then doing Imodium appropriately, her diarrhea resolved. And she agreed to stay on trial. She went back on our Tarceva. That was a Friday when we gave her fluids. Saturday, she went back on it. No more diarrhea after that. And she's still on trial and is receiving second round today. Great. I thought that this is an incredible case in terms of where we might be heading in accrual to clinical trials and what it's going to take to get something done in lung cancer a lot quicker than we've done it in the past. I was just amazed. This woman was refusing chemo and entered a trial that was randomized between chemo and not. So she was willing to take that random and got randomized to chemo and is taking it. Can you talk a little bit more about what your thoughts were about this trial and how you presented it to her. I'm not going to say convinced her, but what led her to join the study? (laughs) For oncologists, if you never lose your dedication to what you learned in training as far as the importance of clinical research, you can pick that up and you can do it in the community. It does take more time up front in the discussion, but in the long run, it's actually, I think, a bit easier. So with her, when I presented it to her, if you can go back to previous trials and personal experience with something like either Arissa or Tarceva and explain to her that you have plenty of examples of people who did very well with chemotherapy and that you have every reason to believe that she would as well, that you can nurture people through the initial, I don't want to be a guinea pig, I don't want chemotherapy. And, you know, clearly there's people who are saying, I am never going to have treatment and you're never going to make any headway. But the people who are wavering because of just some concerns, putting the time in, you can say that we can get you through this. And then as far as clinical trials go, you explain your ignorance, that we don't know in your situation, somebody who hasn't smoked, whether the chemotherapy adds to it or adds to erlotinib, or if you're better off with erlotinib, and it relieves some of the burden off of you, the patient. You decide you want to do something maybe, but you have a guardian angel on your shoulder who is going to pick whichever treatment is for you and relieve the patient somewhat of the decision of saying, I'm going to get this, and then whatever the outcome is, is somehow because of what you decided. Now you can say that it's out of my hands. And a lot of patients take comfort in that, that they're being directed somehow to what their therapy is and they don't have some of the personal responsibility. And she took a lot of it is that, you know, particularly in the South, there's a lot of faith. Religion takes a big role in it. And almost anybody who goes in clinical trial in my practice really embraces that, that the Lord or a higher power is going to direct me to what's meant for me. And after that, it's out of my hands. And that's been very helpful for me for people accepting clinical trials. I would also add that your role in helping her through this illustrates how it's valuable to have committed docs doing these kinds of trials. And I find at academic centers or community centers, regardless of where you are, that extra effort and work you put in to keeping her committed to the trial and keeping her on the study makes all the difference in the world in terms of the ability to get the trial done. And it's remarkable. It's really important that you did that because this trial is going to ask, I think, a very important question. So that's Can great. Can you talk a little bit more about the background of the trial and specifically the issue of clinical research on the, quote, enriched 
TKI population? Well, I think we have a great opportunity here to look at a single agent drug or a combination of therapy, whether it's Tarsivo alone or Tarsivo plus chemo, in a group of enriched patients that actually may predict for remarkable benefit. If the Pazarez trial pans out with our study and a bunch of others in Japan that are being done. Can you explain what that study so was? So the Pazarez trial from Spain, they screened 1,000 patients. About 80 were EGFR positive and 40 or so, 42, were chemo-naive. They then treated them with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or lotinib up front and found a response rate that was in the 80% range and a median time to progression of 13 months and a median survival which hasn't even been reached in that study. So there is no regimen in lung cancer that has ever produced numbers like that. That's the best therapy ever seen in any group of lung cancer patients. And those are better numbers than Herceptin and metastatic breast cancer. Those are remarkable numbers. So by looking for mutations up front, you can make a huge difference in terms of how people do. But I also think it's important to say that mutations aren't the only group of enriched patients. It may be that selecting patients by polysomy using fish, the way we do with Herceptin, maybe that will be a good way to select patients. I think the whole concept of the trial that you participated in, Dr. Taylor, using the oligosmokers, that's another group of patients where doing these kinds of trials is incredibly important. My bias is that you can enrich a population. I would argue that single-agent Tarceva will be as good, if not better, than carboplatin taxolovastin in that group of patients. Although, because we know mutations are also prognostic factors in and of themselves, we probably do need ultimately to compare the outcome of single-agent Tarceva with carboplatin taxolovastin in a patient population of mutation-positive patients. And if the benefit really is as high as we think it is, it shouldn't take that many patients to show that kind of a benefit. I want to just pick your brain about two other subsets. What about the people who don't have any of these risk factors? They've smoked. If you did the mutation test, it was negative. Nothing whatsoever. You see brisk responses in those patients? I haven't. And then that may be the group of patients who are RAS mutants. Patients with a RAS mutation do terribly with TKI therapy. They do terribly with chemotherapy as well. And this, unfortunately, is the largest group of molecularly profiled lung cancer are RAS mutants. And they tend to be the people who are quite heavy smokers. We need better therapy for patients who have a RAS mutation. And the frustrating thing, Alan, I'm curious what you think. I haven't seen a lot of candidate drugs that look exciting in this patient population. Maybe some of the RAF inhibitors will have activity in RAS mutants, but I'm not impressed yet by what we've seen. Just to drop down to the other end, you have a non-smoking Asian woman with a mutation who has a stage two tumor and you're considering adjuvant therapy. Will you bring up the issue of erlotinib in the adjuvant setting. Yes, my thoughts on this have evolved over the past year. I think that that's something which, first of all, not in place of chemotherapy. That patient should get adjuvant chemotherapy with a cisplatin-based regimen in the adjuvant setting. But after that, I think it's something to talk to the patient about. I certainly don't think there's any evidence supporting doing it yet. But if this is something the patient's invested in and the patient wants to do, I do talk to the patient about it because I think that it's something which, with the evidence emerging that these drugs are so active, with somebody who's got a stage 2 lung cancer, and a stage 2 lung cancer has an odds of progression recurrence of as much as 50%, I do think it's reasonable to talk to them about the use of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor in that setting. Alan? I've certainly agreed with everything that Thomas said. The adjuvant setting is a bit more difficult to address. I think it would be something that would certainly be compelling that you'd it'd be hard to not do it. But let me ask you the Neil Love question. And I know you don't have an Asian sister, okay? But what would you do if it was your sister? Right. The question would be, of course, I mean, how long? Is it a year, two years, five years? What would be the length well, two, of time? two, of course. Two, of course. Yeah, fair. It would be a very difficult conversation to have because of the lack of evidence and et cetera. But... 
On the other hand, the data is so compelling from the metastatic setting that if we're enthusiastic, such as myself, enthusiastic about the adjuvant study looking at Avastin, which had a two-month advantage in the metastatic setting, and if the data holds up with the mutations with the EGFR patients of time to progression, anything near 13 months, obviously that's interesting, but it is a bit of a push. Tom, the number that I heard, 10% non-small cell is non-smokers, and maybe up to 15% are patients like this, oligosmokers. Are we talking about potentially 25% of the population being enriched? We think it's about 12% of all non-small cell lung cancer will be EGFR mutation positive. That comes at roughly out to about 15,000 cases a year, which is more than the total number of cases of CML and GIST combined. So you guys are all incredibly excited about the satinib in second-line CML and GIST, and yet there are far more people who have EGFR-mutated lung cancers than will have GIST or CML. So, Alan? I would certainly agree with the 10 to 12% overall history of non-smokers and the fact that the oligosmokers, if that pans out, that those two groups come up to a very sizable group of patients. And I think we always talk about targeting patient populations and having the group, but it's harder to come by. There's more work involved since there was with that patient. You're very lucky that she had a skin nodule and whatnot, because otherwise a lot of our patients are made with a diagnosis with a skinny needle FNA. They've got about six cells that they've used to establish the diagnosis and you can't do anything else. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be interested. I think that's just going to change the paradigm as to how we go about making the diagnosis, that we're going to have to start thinking about this ahead of time for either our interventional radiation or whatnot, that we need core biopsies. We're obviously, the technology is going to have to get better, so we need less tissue to be able to get the diagnosis. But I think it's absolutely the right thing to do, that we should be looking at these distinct populations that do exceptionally well. Well, I think the study that you're in may help that in, if it turns out you're taking people on the study based on clinical parameters and then retrospectively or prospectively going back to analyze whether just the clinical information is enough or is it that it's actually the mutation that has to be there or the fish positivity. I mean, suppose that study turns out that the folks that are never smokers did have a 12-month time to progression. The oligos have a nine-month and everybody else is four months. And although you can set up based on mutation analysis, maybe refine it a little bit better than that, then that might tell us that that's the way we can define the population. And although it would be unfortunate for Mass General and their interest in Genzyme, for everybody else, it would be very favorable. And so it's those studies that have to be done without exception. You get patients on with the study and you provide all the information that's necessary. So maybe it turns out to be just a clinical assessment. We'll see. I actually think what will happen is there's not a single person around here, if you had a patient who comes with a mediastinal mass that wouldn't find a safe way to get a core biopsy for lymphoma, lymphoma right. you would not tolerate a needle aspiration for lymphoma because you've got to know what is the key 67 staining. You want to know, is this a mantle cell? You want to know, is this large cell versus small cell? You know, a whole bunch of key criteria. I would argue that the job of us as investigators, all of us as investigators, is to prove that molecular profiling and molecular staging makes a difference. I think it will because we want to identify RAS mutants. We want to identify EGFR mutants. We want to find out what other predictive factors eventually predict for benefit from Avastin. So I would argue that in five years, we will be doing cores as standard of care on lung masses, and we'll find a way to do it safely. Our radiologists are quite good at doing this. The other technology that I would put out there 
some of the circulating tumor cell work. And there's several companies now that are taking blood for circulating tumor cells, enriching peripheral blood for circulating tumor cells and finding tumor cells there that you can then profile, which is amazing to me that that can be done. It shows you two things. Number one is lung cancer is a systemic disease, a diagnosis. It can be found in the blood, which I guess is not a huge surprise, but maybe we'll have tests like that that'll make a difference. And the third thing would be these new molecular imaging techniques. There are people in animals now that can look at mutations within tumors and image them in these animal model systems. If you could ever do that in patients, if you had a dynamic imaging agent in patients that could tell you if you have an EGFR mutation, that would be a very exciting finding. Alan, where are we in terms of an adjuvant BEV trial? And Tom, what do you think it's going to be like, or what is it like so far in your experience to accrue patients to adjuvant BEV trials? Alan? So the adjuvant study, it's going to be led by ECOG. It's ECOG 1505. It's going to be an international study that will include ECOG. I think SWOG, CLGB is going to participate. The National Cancer Institute Canada is going to, and also EORTC. So it's going to be a global event, 1,500 patients. The original premise, pretty straightforward, resected 1B to 3A patients, randomized to chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab, and we were going to take the European approach of dealer's choice any one of four different chemotherapy regimens, Taxol-Carbo, or three cisplatin-based regimens, Docetaxel-Gem and Vinarelbin, which was set, ready to go, was actually on the PDQ prior to ASCO, PDQ website. But when ASCO came and the update of CLGB study and the 1B study came out with Paclitaxel-Carboplatin potentially not being as positive as it was before and statistically not positive, although my bias is somewhat different, it's now officially been changed. It will include 1B patients, four centimeters or greater. You'll remember the subset in the CLGB study said that four centimeters were better, were benefited by chemotherapy. However, the chemotherapy in that subset's not gonna be included. It's only gonna be three cisplatin-based regimens. We're not including the paclitaxel carboplatin. And hopefully in the next couple of months that will go forward. I hope that although this study will in fact accrue, I'll be interested to hear the folks around the table, I'm afraid that we may have a statistically and scientifically pure study, but may have a study that might be difficult to accrue. We'll see. And that's the issue. I just can't think of a study that's more important in lung cancer than finding out whether or not bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting improves outcome. And I really hope that we're able to overcome some of the hurdles to accruing to studies in the adjuvant setting. As a group, the lung cancer docs have not done as well, Dr. Hussein, as you have, and others in CO8, and the adjuvant colon and breast really have led the way. I don't think Alan should be expecting a massive difference here between Avastin, but I bet you that there's going to be a clinically meaningful difference in this setting. It's going to take 1,500 patients, and we have to show the discipline to accrue those 1,500 patients to these trials. 